Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We are uh, using most of this year to go through the book of Romans to consider what Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, had to say to that church and, and really what he would say to all the churches. After all, the reason he wrote this book was because he himself never made it to Rome, uh, or at least by the time he'd written it. And he wanted to get there to encourage them in the Gospel, but he knew uh, that he might not. And so he wrote a letter that would be the fullest summary of what Paul taught at churches. Romans is that book. And in it, he gives one of the fullest descriptions of what the Gospel is that is available anywhere. And God has used this book in history in many ways. Uh, He led the great thinker Augustine to faith with the book of Romans. He led Martin Luther to the Reformation with the book of Romans. Uh, It has been a powerful book in the history of the church, and we trust uh, for us as well. And in it, Paul gives a summary at the very beginning of the book what he intends for us to get. That the Gospel, in the Gospel, the message of Jesus, there is a righteousness from God that is given as a gift through faith, uh, and that is good news, and you want to hear it. But before we really get into the aspect of good news, we need to understand why we need news like that. A righteousness that comes by faith, not works. Paul David Tripp said it this way, you have to be willing to accept the worst news ever, your sin, in order to receive the best news ever, God's grace. And we're in the section about our sin. It's hard to hear Uh, And I'll just be candid with you. It's hard to preach because I'm thinking about my sin all week now as I look at these passages. But we have to come to grips with who we really are if we're going to understand the depth and the greatness of God's grace. We need to be driven to the point where we despair of ever saving ourselves so we will turn in complete dependence upon what Christ has done and, and that is my goal for you, is to hear what Paul says in chapters 1, through about the middle of chapter 1 to the middle of chapter 3, that it will lead you to have no confidence in yourself, in your religion, in your works, but to have complete confidence in the Lord Jesus. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. Let's pray before we read. Father in heaven, would you bless the reading of your word? Would you bless your people as we read it? Would you lift up and exalt Christ? Would you help us see our need of Him? And indeed, through seeing our need, come running to Him and experience His salvation and to find the joy of knowing a righteousness that comes through faith, not works. May Christ be exalted. May your church be built up. And may you be honored. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 3, verse 1. This is God's Word. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does, that, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But, 
If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. This is God's Word. It's completely true. And it is utterly trustworthy. Alright, I want to take you on a, a, a hypothetical situation that will strain your ability to believe. So I need you to do like you would with a fantasy movie. Suspend your disbelief for a moment. I want you to imagine a person who goes to his physician and gets in one of the uh, annual checkups and wants the whole work done. The whole battery of tests that can be done to check his entire health. And he, he goes through the whole battery of tests and gets everything done. The results come back and the physician comes in and sits down with him and says, I've got some pretty bad news. The cholesterol and blood chemistry and I really don't know anything about medicine so I'm making this up. Uh, you know, everything about you is leading you to be right for heart disease and you need to change some things. And the doctor begins to describe the best plan of action is to deal with your diet and your exercise and gives the man a sheet of paper here are things that are good for you to eat and he looks at the list and he says I don't want to eat any of these things. And there's a lot of things I like to eat that aren't on the list. But I have a history of heart problems in my family and I want to be around for my children and grandchildren. I will do this list. And even there, while he's sitting listening, he's beginning to make a plan on how he's going to change his diet and how he's going to be committed to this list with religious devotion, utterly committed, three meals a day, guaranteed, even if he goes out to eat, He's only going to go places where he can get things on this list. And exercise. And he's not much of an exerciser. Uh, occasionally walks to the fridge, that kind of thing. And so uh, he, he begins to make a plan. Modest plan, but good. Three times a week, 30 minutes on those times, real cardio exercise. And then a couple times else during the week, just you know, stretching or weightlifting, just things to keep him active. And even maybe on family vacations, we're going to do active vacations like skiing and, and things like that rather than uh, the ones where you just sit around. So he makes these plans. And for one year, without fail, he keeps them. Completely devoted to the plan. With religious commitment, he holds on to it. And after a year, he goes back to his test. And the doctor runs the same battery of tests and goes to him up one side and down the other, and comes back into the office and says to him, nothing's changed. Your cholesterol's the same. Your weight's the same. Your body chemistry's all the same. You're still right for heart uh, problems. You, you might just need to try harder. And the man hears this, and he's completely so stunned and so desperate in fact, so despairing. And he says, I can't do it. And he walks out of the doctor's office and he goes to the grocery store and pulls the first bag of chips he's bought in a year. He grabs the ruffles 
and he eats the whole bag. And he chases it down with chili cheese fries from Sonic. And that sets the course for a year. He becomes the new definition of a couch potato. His picture is there in the encyclopedia for that definition. He's the guy. And it's sad, and he's just simply depressed almost the whole year. Still, a year later, no heart problems, at least not evident, so he goes to his physical, and he gets checked up, and the doctor comes in, and he says, well, your cholesterol is the same. Your weight's the same. Your blood chemistry is the same. Now, keep in mind, I told you it would stretch your ability to believe. I want you to pretend this situation could happen. I'm not a doctor, and I urge you not to take your medical advice from your pastor. So, pretend, though, that this were the condition. What would this man say? Wouldn't he say, what good was it to work so hard? Why would I try so hard if I'm in the same place? What we think cannot happen physically happens to all of us spiritually. We read about in chapter 1 of Romans, this immoral pagan who's full of all kinds of vice and immoral activity, and we say his condemnation is entirely just. And then Paul says, well, what about the moralist in chapter 2? He's guilty too. He stands before God having done the same things. The chief sin of the unbeliever was that he exchanged the glory of God for something created. And that's how the pagan gets away with his immorality. But here comes a moralist, and he's done the same thing. He's exchanged the glory of God for his own ability to keep a standard, something created. And he's in the same condition. And we learn from Paul, his condemnation is just. And then we learn about the Jew, the religious person, utterly trying to keep the law, doing all the things that were required, circumcised and and, and worshiping and doing the things. And Paul says, you Jew, you're condemned too. Because all you have done is instead of exchanging the glory of God for immorality and exchanging the glory of God for your morality, you've exchanged the glory of God for your religious practices. You are just as guilty and just as condemned. And so spiritually speaking, we hear from the physician you did it this way, and you're condemned. And you did it religious, and you're condemned. And we say, why would I want to be religious? It's hard. I have to give up a lot of stuff that, quite frankly, I would write on the sheet that I want to do, if I could. That's the question that Paul's asking in Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? If the immoral pagan is condemned, and if the moralist is condemned, and if the religious person is, is condemned, if all three of us are without excuse before God in the exact same condition, why be religious? He said, why be a Jew? You've got to remember, Paul's writing before the New Testament's completed. He's writing to a church that largely, if they're going to read something, they're going to be reading the Old Testament. And largely, they're t- drawing from the Jewish religion only they're understanding it with clarity now in a way they hadn't. It was supposed to be about Jesus. And yet they're still seeing it as a, a way to commend themselves to God. And so Paul is pointing out that that won't save anybody. Now, if we were to apply this to today, the question would look like this, then what advantage has 
the churchgoer. The Jew was the one who had uh, all of the religious trappings and the place where God was at work. Today it's the church. They're, they're equivalent. The church is the fulfillment of the Jewish people in the Old Testament. And so we stand in the exact same place before God. And, and we would say, you could go to church. You can sign the commitment cards. You can become a member. You can participate in everything that happens. You can teach Sunday school. We read last week. If you're a, a teacher to the blind and you're a counselor to those who are lost, you can still be condemned. You can still be without excuse. We might say, well, what good is it? I get up early on Sunday mornings. Why should I do that? I should just go play golf. What good is it to be a churchgoer? And Paul has an answer, verse 2. Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. He says, the reason to be Jewish is because you had the words of God and nobody else had that. Now, you hear that and you go, okay, that sounds okay. What does that mean? Well, when it says to begin with, it might be better to say instead of to begin with, which sounds like he's going to have a list of reasons, it might be better to think firstly or chief or, or, or in a primary sense. Here's the best reason to be a Jew. You've got access to the oracles of God. Now, I want you to flip back with me, if you will. Just look back in, in chapter 1, it's probably a page or two, in verse 16. I want you to listen carefully. Verse 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Do you hear what he says? In the gospel, the good news that I have for you, there's a righteousness of God or from God. It's God's righteousness that comes through faith faith in Christ. Okay? It's being revealed there. It's the only place you can find it. It's in the Gospel. Look at verse 118. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So you hear two things. There's a righteousness of God from, or for faith being revealed and there's a wrath of God being revealed. And it tells us the wrath of God is being revealed in nature, in creation, and in our hearts. That is to say something like this. Every human being knows that there is a God to which they are subject and obligated. And the thing we do with that knowledge is we hide it, and we suppress it, and we ignore it, we cover it up and reject it. But we deep down really do know there is a God out there we can tell from creation and from the things around us that this God has eternal power and that He is divine and we are obligated to Him and we have failed to seek Him and orient our lives about Him. We know His wrath is revealed. We know His standard, at least that their standard exists and we haven't met it. And so we are obligated to God and we're under His wrath. It's being revealed. You can find it everywhere. That's what Paul says. Here's the thing. Where do you find an answer for it? Only in the oracles of God. Only in the Word of God. The Jews were hearing the promises of God over and over again that God would pursue them. 
that he would bless them, that from this Jewish community he was going to raise up a Messiah who would bless the whole world. They heard the promises of God that God would be gracious, that he would forgive sins, that he would send someone to save them. They heard these promises. And it was the, only these promises. These are the only things that could deal with our condition under the wrath of God, being righteously and justly condemned by God. The oracles of God are the only place you find the answer. You won't find it looking in the stars. You won't find it looking in the sciences. If you take a microscope, or better, you figure out how to look at the atom, you can stand amazed at the intricacies of God's creation. As you pick apart the neutrons and protons and electrons and, and see how they work together and be amazed. And you can see the divine nature and the eternal power of God. And you can look at the, the, the skies and with the literally astronomical units that describe our universe and stand in awe. You can see God's power and you can see that He is there and you can know that we're obligated to Him but we don't seek Him. We exchange the glory of that God for something created. And you can know that. But you cannot find in the atom, and you cannot find in the skies, and you cannot find anywhere in this natural creation the answer to our problem only in the oracles of God. And so Paul says, listen, you have that if you go to church. If you go to the place where the Bible is read and taught, you at least have the one place you can find the answer to your problems. It's a little bit like saying this. What goes it there being a pharmacist? And the doctor says, it's the place you can go to get help for your sickness. Well, what good is it to have a mechanic? It's the place you can go to get your car fixed. What good is it to have the church? It's the place you can go to hear what will save your soul and is the only place. You have the oracles of God. Now, here's the thing. You go back and you look at those Old Testament folks and you say, but they were a pretty messy looking bunch. They had the promises of God, but man, they were a disaster. They heard God speak from a mountain and then worshipped a calf the next day. They saw God bring miraculous prophets and then they turned and bowed down to idols made of steel and wood and, and, and silver and gold. These guys were a mess. If the promises of God, if that's what they do, is it really significant? Listen to his question. Verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? His answer, by no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Here's his point. Yes, you find a lot of faithfulness, faithlessness in the Jews. And if we want to update it for the church, if the church is the fulfillment of the Jews, isn't it the same way? Don't you look around at the broader church, at least in America, we'll just focus there where we know the most, and see that it's just like the Jews of the Old Testament? Doesn't it look exactly the same? Or, or perhaps you would say it this way. Could you look at the church today and you know that you're familiar with and tell an unbeliever, hey, look, you want to know about Jesus? Just look at the church. You can find everything you want to know. And you go, see, they'll believe because of that, right? No, we go, look, don't look at the church, look at Jesus. Because we know the church is, is flawed and messed up. We look just like those Old Testament Jews. Our faithlessness is on display just as much as theirs. And, and, and here's the point. 
what it does is simply show God's righteousness in the judgments he's already announced. His wrath is perfectly just. Because here's what he's saying. I not only know that you don't seek me, when I seek you, when I show you the promises and the grace that's the answer to your sins, you still run away. You still avoid me. And and what we're learning from this is the nature of sin. Our most fundamental commitment in our hearts, the, the most fundamental thing of who we really are by nature, is not that we are by, by nature some kind of immoral person who just wants freedom. Or by nature we're just some person who wants to be moral and keep the rules. Or by nature we, we just want to be someone who's religious and, and a seeker. Those aren't who we are. Those are all surface fruit of a more fundamental commitment that we exchange the glory of God for something created. We're all the same in that. We just have different strategies to try to live that way because we don't want to have to trust in God. We don't want to depend on Him. We want to earn it. We want to say, I did this. I want to be my own Savior. It's why those Jews could hear on a mountain the very voice of God and then build an idol for themselves because the idol they could manage and control and the God they heard was unpredictable. We don't know what He might do. And it's hard to trust somebody like that. And listen, the same thing that drove them to their idolatry drives us to ours. We look at God and we say, I don't know what you'll do. And you frighten me. So let me build a more manageable God. Someone I can count on. Someone I can control and manage. I don't want to have to trust in you. And so God's righteousness is displayed brilliantly even when you're offered grace and God says, look, I will forgive everything. Just come back. We still say, no, I want to go my own way. C.S. Lewis said it like this in The Problem of Pain. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell, the wrath of God, is itself a question, what are you asking God to do? To wipe out all their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty, and offering every miraculous help. But He has done that at Calvary. To forgive them, they refuse to be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I am afraid that is what He does. God's wrath is separating us from Him because we say, I'd rather have the created things than God. And that is at the heart of every human being apart from the supernatural intervention of God. That's who we are by nature. And so, if it's the same condition, why be religious? Paul says because you get to hear the answer. But if the answer being heard doesn't do anything, why, listen, why not just say, well look, if if my unrighteousness and my evil and my wickedness and my rebellion goes to show God's righteousness, why does He even care what I do? It all works out for Him. Right? It all works out. That's his next question. Look at verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? 
And why not just do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Let me just answer this question in one word. Why does God care about what we do or think? If at the end of the day, if I am righteous before Him, in any way He can make that happen, it proves to His glory. And if I am unrighteous, in whatever way that may look, it proves to show His justice and His righteousness. Why does God care what I do? Paul's answer is this. Because at the end of the day, all of your unrighteousness, all of your sin, all of your lying, all of your dishonesty, all of your judging, all of our sins, all of our attempts to be religious so that we can commend ourselves to God, all of our moral things, trying to save ourselves, they're all strategies to say, God, keep out. And the one thing God wants from you is that you would love Him. And so, the most fundamental thing about us is, I do not want to love God. And the one thing God wants from us is to love Him. And so we stand in utter opposition to Him. And that is why God cares. It's not about a list of rules. God isn't trying to say, I want you to walk the line. God is saying, I want you to know me. I want you to enjoy me. I want you to love me. And I will love you until you do. And even when he says that, we reject him. Unless he turns our hearts. Unless he gives us a righteousness that we couldn't earn. It is why we need righteousness as a gift. Because we can't do it on our own. Let me end with this. Will you, right now, today, this moment, say, God, I'm going to stop trusting my religious acts. I'm going to stop thinking that because I have my name on a sheet of paper at a church as a member, that I'm okay. I'm going to stop thinking that because I have taught Sunday school or taught children or done something in the church, that that makes me okay. I'm going to stop thinking because I've been baptized or because I've partaken Lord's Supper or because I go to church, I'm okay. I'm going to stop thinking because people look at me and say, he's a pretty decent dude. She's a good neighbor that I'm okay. Will you stop saying that there's something in you that can commend you to God? And will you say, I will trust only in the righteousness of Jesus. And it will cover me completely. D. James Kennedy, a pastor uh, who's gone to be with the Lord, uh, was a pastor for many years in, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And he wanted to help the congregation develop a way to talk about the gospel with their neighbors and their co-workers and and, and the, the most useful tool he developed were two questions. He called them diagnostic questions. Don't worry about that. He said, I want you to ask two questions of your friends. Ask them one. On a scale of zero to a hundred, how sure are you that you'd go to heaven if you died tonight? It's a good question. You see, most of us are going to answer, uh, I'm 60%, because I think I'm a pretty good guy. But you see, here's the problem with that. If it's your righteousness, it's 0%. It's not 60 or 70. 
If it depends on you at all, it's zero. But if it depends entirely on Jesus, it's 100. There can be no in-betweens. His second question was, if you got in front of God and said, why? And God said, why should I let you into my heaven? This is a great question. How would you answer that? Most of us would say, well, I did these things. I remember at vacation Bible school, raising my hand and praying the prayer they told me to pray. I remember doing some good things. And you should let me in because of my good things. And God will say, depart from me, I never knew you. But if you come to that very question, and you say, listen, there's nothing in me that should let me in. But Jesus lived for me. And Jesus died for me. And he rose again for me. And if he does not save me, you should not let me in. Then you're in. There is no righteousness except what he gives by faith. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are indeed sinners and desperate sinners at that. We have tried to keep our diets and to do the exercises and we come to our physician and we're condemned. And so we live lives of immorality and selfishness and we are condemned and we can't figure out how to fix it on our own. So point us to Jesus. This way that's neither my righteousness nor my freedom but it's His work and His completed work and a righteousness that is a gift to us, apart from works. May that be our salvation. Would you give us faith in Christ Jesus? We pray in His name. Amen. As you hear of the, the gospel that was won for you, the, the grace that was won for you by the Lord Jesus Himself, take your hymnals and turn to...